You're listening to Pastor Dave Lusk of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled Of Mice and Men's Gods, recorded on Sunday, October 14th, 2018. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Dave as he preaches. Welcome everybody. My name is Dave. I'm the youth pastor here. It's so good to be here with you. When Mike originally talked to me, uh, about doing this. He said, you know, uh, I'm looking for some help. Uh, I was wondering if we could maybe tag team a sermon. And I, the youth pastor in me couldn't help but get this picture in my brain of like halfway through the sermon, like running up and like high five. And then one of uh, the other one takes over. Um, apparently that wasn't what he meant. Uh, or it might be, you might be in for a big shock halfway through this thing. Um, but I'm excited. It's good to be up here with you all. Welcome, uh, those of you who are in Freeport and Indiana and Petrolia. It is so good to be here worshiping with you all um, as we are one church in multiple locations. So cool to see the body of Christ at work and growing. Um, hey, has anybody noticed recently, maybe you have, maybe you haven't, how ridiculously popular superhero movies are getting? Like... Some of you, I hear some excited noises from the crowd. That's good. So some of you understand, right? They're just everywhere, right? It used to be kind of this sporadic, under the radar, you'd really have to be a fan to go and see it and appreciate it kind of thing, to becoming not just every year, but multiples every year. They become just so popular in in today's culture. We wait for them, right? The technology for our movies has come such a long way that the stories are actually interesting. They actually look like superheroes, not just weird guys in really tight-fitting spandex. Um, Right? They've gone from laughable to enjoyable. They've become just these really great, believable stories Stories that suck you in and you find yourself excited for the next one and the next one. And because they've become so popular, the old debates have reignited, right? Like the who do you think could beat who in a fight debates, right? The like who would win in a fight, Batman or Superman? Or who would win in a fight, Iron Man or Captain America? Well, where we pick up in the story in First Samuel... There's a very similar question being asked, right? The Philistines, 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 I'm going to switch between those two the whole night, I know it. Um, But they whooped on the Jews, like bad. They beat them, they went, sent them home to their mamas crying. The Hebrews in desperation, because they know they're getting whooped, go get the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Lord, and they bring it out like, yeah, what now? Get them, God. God didn't show up. What happened? The ark gets captured. They run home to mama. People die. It's, it's sad. Um, but as Mike said last week, God is not ours to command. He, he's not ours to control through good luck charms. And so God allows, in his sovereignty, the Philistines to whoop on the Hebrews and to take the ark. They capture the ark. They take it back to their city. They put it in the temple of their god, Dagon, Dagon. Right? This thing... Dagon, this god that they worship, isn't real though, right? This is important to hit right out of the gate because <clears throat> this is where we start. He's fictitious. He's made up. He's not real. He's false. He, he's just 
a figment, right? There are no other gods except God. There are no other gods except God. That's it. He's it. There is no one else. There is only God. There are no challengers. There is no one else. There is only God. There is only our God alone. And the Philistines don't believe that. The Philistines take the ark and they put it in their temple. They take it as kind of the, the spoils uh, of war, so to speak, this, this exciting moment for them. Right? And so they put it in the same room as their god, as Dagon. Now, Dagon, he had a temple, right? It, it, it was built by the Philistines. He had an image that they had made. They had set up in the temple so that they could worship him. He had rules, I'm sure, and priests and all these different kind of things that they would do to worship their god. But no matter how sincere they are about that, he's not real. He's made up. He's a figment. He's something that they invented in their own minds. Something made by human hands. But they believed. Right? They believed he was their God. And they believed that when they conquered others in battle, that it was their God who was fighting for them, that Dagon was going out and, and destroying these other armies before them. And, and so to demonstrate right, the superiority of their God, they would take these spoils. They would take the, the gods of the other people that they had conquered. They would take them and they'd lay them before Dagon in his temple as an offering. See how great our God. Look at all these other gods that he towers over. And so they drag the ark of the Lord into the temple, believing that this, this represents, this is Israel's God. And our God is defeated, their God, in battle, because we whooped them good. And so they, it'd be like if when the Penguins won the hockey game against the Flyers, they could drag that new terrifying mascot out onto the end, just lay it down, like, triumphant. Um, that's what they're doing. They're showing their superiority. They're showing the claim that their God, Dagon, is defeated the God of Israel, the God of the Hebrews. He's beaten him. What they don't know is that the God of the Hebrews is not like their God. He's not fictitious. He's not made up. He's real. He is the only God. There is no other God. It's just him. Right? He who made everything out of nothing. He who created by the very word of his mouth. He who set everything into motion. He who sustains all life. Who gives life. Who breathed life into man. He who forbids images of himself to be made. Who forbids us to worship idols even in his own likeness. Right? But no man has seen God, so how could we make something in his likeness? Right? Who calls us to worship him and him alone, because he alone is worthy of our worship. The one true God, eternal, all-powerful, all-present, all-seeing, all-knowing. Are you getting the picture? Are you seeing the bigness? He's bigger than the box. That's what I'm trying to... They took the box, but God's bigger than the box. But they don't see that. They just took what was his. You done messed up, Aaron. <laughs> The Philistines took the ark, carried it before their pagan god, their lie, and dropped it there to show the superiority, to show Dagon's superiority. Who would win in a fight, the Philistines ask? Our god Dagon or the god of the Hebrews? 
Right? They think the answer is that their God, that Dagon, would win because of the outcome of the battle. But here, here's the thing. In a fight between Dagon and God, Dagon doesn't stand a Dagon chance. Right? He's, he's not really there. That's like asking who would win in a fight, the boxer or the punching bag? Unless the boxer is useless, probably the boxer. To show this in just epic fashion, God pushes Dagon over. You bring, <laughs> you gonna bring me into his house like he's somehow superior? I'll show you how, how superior your God is. Pushes him down before the ark. Right? That, that'd be something to find in the morning. Right? That would, that would cause you to pause for a moment. If you're the Philistines and they're walking into the temple... Right, they come back all pleased, ready to worship, and like point out, we did it, we beat the Israelites. Look, here's their God before. Wait, wait, what, what? Dagon, what are you doing? Get off the ground. <laughs> I have to imagine. Right? <laughs> Life alert, anybody? <laughs> Dagon's falling, he can't get up. <laughs> Problem is, they didn't have life alert back then, so they had to wait till morning. They get there in the morning, and he's just laying on the ground. They're like, what are you doing? And I, I have no doubt they probably had some questions, because who wouldn't in that moment? You walk into the temple. They built this God. They built it for him. This is the temple. This is where he's supposed to be. Chances are he wasn't designed to fall over in the middle of the night. Chances are this is an awkward occurrence. Chances are this probably hasn't even happened before. Because let's be real. If you're going to build a God, you're probably going to build him kind of sturdy. If you're going to build a God to worship, you kind of don't want it to f- fall down on you. I'm just, just spitballing here, right? So generally, I would think that the statue's supposed to remain upright, that the building's supposed to be a little bit secure, that he's kind of supposed to be impressive. Falling over is not impressive. Um, some of you are real good at it. <laughs> oh, it's okay. You're clumsy. We still love you, right? But they're thinking, no need to worry. We got this. Stand him back up. So they put Dagon back up. Pat themselves on the back. Good job, guys. We did it. (laughs) Until they get back the next morning. Right? They come back the next morning, and daggone it, he fell down again. (laughs) Except this time, as if to emphasize his point, God takes his head and his hands. Clearly, they didn't get the message the first time, and so he's like, fine, we'll just take it up a notch. And so they come in the morning, and his head and his hands are on the threshold, right? So I just picture, like, so, you know, just chucking a, a lopped-off head. This is, you know, once again, I'm weird. So I just picture, you know, he's just kind of chucking a lopped-off head, and it lands on the threshold. That's kind of threatening. I don't know if, if maybe you regularly come home, and there's severed heads on the front of your doorstep. If you are, move. Um, <laughs> report your neighbors, Right? But that's not what you expect to see when you show up in the morning. First day he fell over. Now, now, as if to emphasize, behold your pitiful God. Here are the pieces. Behold your brainless, powerless God now. Good luck standing him back up now. God took Dagon out. Now, the Bible doesn't specifically state this, but I'm I'm an imaginative youngster. Um, And so... I picture an angel of the Lord coming down to just do business, to just get it done, right? Uh, sword. Now, when I say angel, don't think like the Christmas angels. 
that we all decorate with, right, that are all like pretty and smiley and kind of whitish and innocent looking. Because whenever angels show up in the Bible, I don't know if you know, people fall down in terror. Um, but we don't decorate with those kind of angels at Christmas because nobody wants to celebrate Christmas by peeing their pants. Um, <laughs> So this is what I'm picturing, right? Angel comes down like, we'll show, gone. Takes off the head, takes off the hands, kicks over the useless body. This is my house now. God knocks down the false god because he will not share what is rightfully his. People worship things that they've made. They worship things that they've created with their own hand. This goes on all over the world, too. All over the world. Hundreds of millions of Buddhists right, and Hindus and, and worshiping these false creatures, cows and monkeys, rats, whatever. They carve these elaborate structures and they put them up to worship in their temples with rituals and their offerings, worshiping these man-made things. What does God have to say about that? Well, he says this in Exodus 20, 4 through 6. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. God doesn't want us worshiping any of those things. Why? Because he made them. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. God is a jealous God, he says. He declares, I am a jealous God. Now, when you hear jealous, you might be thinking of the way you feel jealous sometimes. When you see someone who has something that you don't, but you really want it, and you should be the one who has it, and not them because they're a terrible person and you're a good person, so you should have that thing so you get jealous. Not that kind of jealousy. Not that base, twisted, sinful jealousy. No. See, we belong to God. He created us. He made us in his image. He declared us his own. He created us to worship him and him alone. We steal from God when we worship something else. Because we are rightfully his. Our worship is rightfully his and so when we steal it and give it to baser things, we are robbing what is rightfully God's. And he knows that when we worship creature rather than creator, when we worship things rather than the one who made all things, that we are cheating ourselves because we are worshiping nothing. We are worshiping nothing, whether it's idols or whatever. We are worshiping nothing. And so therefore we are wasting our worship, our time, and our effort there's no benefit to us. And so God jealously guards our worship and desires it for himself because he is the only one who is worthy and it is only by worshiping him that we can receive any benefit. So God is jealous for our own benefit because only God is worthy to be worshiped. And yet we so freely offer our worship to idols, to false gods. Right? We may not see a whole lot of temples and things set up here, but go out to the Far East, go to China, go to India. Head out where, you know, where the people just are and have been for, for thousands of years. In Vietnam, they have these tiny little household shrines to their household gods. And they give them offerings of, of 
like oranges is a big one. Um, Coca-Cola, which is not something you think of. Kentucky Fried Chicken, um, serious on that one. It's really popular as an offering in Vietnam because, you know, nothing appeases God like those 11 herbs and spices. Um, <laughs> in Thailand, you have tourists, people who travel thousands of miles to come and to rub the belly and worship the golden fat man, Buddha, who's actually not the fat one. But <laughs> that's a story for another day. India, filled with people worshiping the, the statues and the cows and the rats and anything else, really. And here's what's interesting. In our society, in our culture here in America, we're told to value and to respect other religions. To place them on the same level as we do Jesus, as we do Christianity, as we do our Savior. We're encouraged to embrace their philosophies. I can't tell you how many Christians I know who actually believe in karma. That karma is somehow a Christian concept. That like, if I do good things, then good things will happen to me. But if I do bad things, then the universe is going to punish me. We take and adopt their practices and we stir them into the mix. Thinking that our God works like these false gods. But there is no God but our God. People in America say coexist. I hate those bumper stickers. First off, if... If you're building your worldview on anything that can be summed up in a bumper sticker, your worldview is overly simplified. Your worldview is lacking in depth, right? If everything you believe as a person can be summed up neatly on the back of your Prius, you're doing it wrong. A, truck. More room. <laughs> right? We say coexist. That works if, if there are many gods. That works if they're all equal. That works if there is something else out there. Then coexisting sounds like a good idea. But there is only one God. The others are inventions of men. And so coexist is just a lie. As God said through his servant Solomon in 1 Kings 8, let these words of mine, which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord, our God, day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, as each day requires that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. There is no other. Why doesn't coexist work? Because there is no other. There is no one for God to coexist with. There is only God. There is only our Father and His Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit who dwells within all those who follow Him. God, the triune, perfect, only God. All the peoples of the earth need to see that God is God. There is no other Anything else is a lie. To put some false god on the same playing field as our God is to insult the sacrifice of Jesus, is to insult God himself. These Philistines saw that their God required them to build him. He had to be made. They had to craft him. Not only that, but they had to stand him back up. What kind of God is worth anything that you have to stand up in the morning? What kind of God can save you that can't get himself up off the ground? 
He's not God. He's a work of their own hands, an invention, a fabrication. People follow these false gods. They offer sacrifices. They live a certain way. They abstain from certain foods. They blow themselves up. And why? To somehow find favor, to somehow avoid punishment from these capricious false gods. I know it's a big word. You can look it up. Right? Usually trying to appease them to find their favor, but there's no certainty in it. There's just this blind, empty hopefulness that maybe if I offered enough fried chicken, the ancestors will bless me. They can't know that it will work. They can't know that they will be accepted, that these false gods will have pity or mercy on them. And then today you have some people who will say things like, these people who think that somehow... God came back, that he revealed himself in different ways. That yes, there was Jesus, but there's also Buddha. That you can follow Buddha. That God reveals himself as Buddha if you're sincere in that belief that that you will be saved. That somehow the sincerity of belief in whatever it is will save you. But it doesn't matter how sincere you are about a lie, that doesn't make it the truth. It doesn't matter how sincerely you believe that two plus two equals fish, it will not pass the test. Maybe in today's educational system it will, but not really. It shouldn't, right? The idea that all these religions are just somehow equal, that they all end in the same place. First of all, that's just dumb. All roads can't lead to the same place. Anyone that's driven around Pittsburgh enough knows you can't get there from here. (laughs) You can't get there from here. You can't follow Buddha and get to heaven with Jesus. You can't get there from here. You can't follow Islam and get to heaven with Jesus. You can't get there from here. Second, the gods of men do not resemble the God of the Bible. The gods of men do not resemble the God of the Bible. The gods invented by men, like Muhammad's Allah, who gives their martyrs virgins in paradise, speaks volumes about Allah's view of women as things, as property to be traded out. Right? Where, whereas our God speaks to the value of men and women, they are created both in his image. They both carry the image of God. They are both deeply loved by their God. Allah and God are not the same. But you'll say, Dave, the blow themselves up Muslims are just perverting the Quran. But that just makes it a perversion of a perversion. It's already a lie. It's a believing a lie about something that's already a lie doesn't make it genuine. It doesn't matter how twisted it gets if it's already twisted from the start. The gods of the Hindus require these constant sacrifices. They inspire fear among their followers. They're they're constantly requiring these people to subjugate themselves, to worship them in order to avoid punishment. But not only that, because of their twisted beliefs and how they look at things, when they see someone who is destitute or is poor, who's sick, who's in a difficult situation, their karma put them there. That's, that's the belief in karma. That's what karma is. That those who are born poor or sick or destitute or lame or begging, you shouldn't help them. They earned that in their past life. That's karma. That they were set backwards because they've somehow done something to deserve it. They deserve their lot in life because of their bad karma. 
Don't help that kid digging in the trash looking for food. He's supposed to be there. Don't help that kid laying sick on the side of the road. He's supposed to be there. That's not our God. That's not the God of the Bible. That is not Jesus. Our God came and served us. He came to serve, not to be served. Calls us to come and to find love and acceptance and forgiveness and grace and mercy. Not subjugating ourselves, not hoping that we can possibly be accepted, but making us acceptable by the blood of his son. He paid the price. He paid the price to give us forgiveness. He sacrificed. He brought the offering. We accept it and we worship with our whole heart. Our God is the only one who is willing to pay the price himself to bring us into a relationship. Third, God has himself declared that the only way he shows himself to the world is through his word and through his son. Look at this in Exodus 23. Pay attention to all I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods nor let it be heard on your lips. God's instructions are clear. Other gods are not even to be spoken of with respect or reverence. They're lies. I don't even want you to be talking about them as if they're gods, as if they're somehow real. He forbids it. He does not show himself to the world through other gods. So anyone who says, that, well, yeah, but God should, no. God is God alone, and he shows himself through his word and through his son. Through his word, the Bible, the living word, and through his son, Jesus. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. He's talking about Jesus. John is talking about Jesus, who has seen God, only the Son, only Jesus. Only Jesus, who is with the Father. Jesus has made him known. God reveals himself to us through his word and through Jesus. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. This is the writer of Hebrews talking. He's explaining, right? God spoke through his word. He spoke through the prophets. We have that written down. We have that recorded. We have seen who he is through his word. But in these last days, where they were then, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus showed up in the flesh, whom he anointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. God speaks to mankind through the prophets, through the Old Testament. God speaks to us through the New Testament, those who wrote it down, who are inspired by the Holy Spirit. God speaks through his son, Jesus, who is the exact imprint of his nature. He is God forever who took on flesh. God does not reveal himself by the Quran. God does not reveal himself by the Lotus Sutra. God does not reveal himself by the Book of Mormon. God reveals himself through his word, through his holy word, through the Bible. That is set apart. The only book that reveals to us the nature and character and goodness of God. He does not reveal himself in statues of cows or in cows themselves. I don't care how delicious they are. <laughs> he does not reveal himself in, in pointless statues. 
He does not reveal himself through men sitting cross-legged on the floor, meditating about nothing and going, um, um. It's like they forget the question they're trying to ask. Um, um, it's right on the tip of my tongue. What was it? He reveals himself through his son, Jesus, who spoke, who taught, who called us to follow him. God will not coexist with a lie with any other gods. There's God and God alone. He alone has made a way to salvation. He alone has called us to follow him. And it's through Jesus and no one else. The disciples knew this. They preached it in Acts 4. They say, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's it. Jesus. It's Jesus or nothing. There is no other name that will save you. He will not share credit. He will not pervert himself with false gods. He is holy and perfect. He is set apart as the one true God. And he makes a way for us to come to him through his son, Jesus. He stands apart and will continue to stand apart. And we see here that God remains in control. Even when the Philistines capture the ark, They're not somehow in control of God. They've not somehow gotten the upper hand on him. Oh, cool, you took a golden box. Watch what a real God can do. They took it because God allowed them to take it. God is still God. He's not up there in heaven going, oh, crap, what now? They took the box. I had a plan, but then they took the box. Right? Israel dropped the ball. God is still God. And God will protect his own good name. Israel sullied it, but God will defend it. God will protect his own good name. The Jews had dragged the name of their God through the mud, treating him as some good luck charm, treating him like the other nations treated their false gods. They used his ark. They lost it to the Philistines. They did everything they could to make God look bad. And yet... God was still in control. They made God look weak, and yet God revealed his true strength, his true nature. God defended his own name and his own glory. He allowed it to happen so that he might display his glory to the Philistines and to his own people. First, he destroys Dagon, like we covered, in just epic fashion. (laughs) It didn't just fall over and break. His hands and head were lopped off. (laughs) <laughs> and another imp, godfather anybody the horse head yeah yeah it was a mob hit took him out whack gone god is sending a message to the philistines about who he is about who they are he is revealing himself to them and showing them that he is holy that he is set apart and he is not to be trifled with because then he begins to torment them for stealing his holy ark, for having the audacity to profane his name. They took it because it represented the God of the Jews in their eyes. How does he next get their attention? Tumors. That's a slight escalation. That'll wake you up. Went to bed. Wasn't sure what happened to Dagon. Woke up the next morning. Tumors. (laughs) That's not pleasant. All right, that is not something you want. Tumors and sickness and infestation of mice. 
It says, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us. Huh. (laughs) Go figure. They were real excited about it 20 minutes ago. For his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. (laughs) They're like, poor Dagon. (laughs) He lost his Dagon head. (laughs) That's not going to get old. (laughs) They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel. Let it return to its own. Let them deal with it, that it may not kill us and our people. There was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors. Not sure which one is worse. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. So the ark's in one town. They had it in the temple. That wasn't going well. Suddenly tumors start to show up and the people are going, you know, maybe we should share this thing. Share the credit. So they send it off to another. That town takes it. They start getting tumors to the point where they're ready to send it on to the third town. Right? I, I skipped over a little bit of that, but the, the people of Ekron, the third town, the ark's coming. They're going, you sent the ark here to kill us. They don't want it. So they finally decide to send it back to the Israelites. Notice something, though. Notice something. This is important. They recognized and saw the power of God and his holiness. They saw God at work. They saw his mighty hand. They saw clearly that God is not false. He's God. And their response? Get it away. Get it away. We don't want him here. They send him away. Some people don't want the truth. They want the lie. Some people don't want the truth even when it's right in front of them. Some people will reject the truth no matter how apparent it is. And notice also, it's not Israel who's doing this. It's not Israel who somehow has to plan. They didn't sneak into Dagon's temple and lop off his head and his hands and then like hide somewhere like, <laughs> no. They weren't inflicting people with tumors. They weren't over there like shooing mice into the Philistine cities all Pied Pipery? No. The Israelites are not causing the Philistines to fear. God is making his name great. God is making himself known. God is glorifying himself through the Philistines. We can sometimes think that that since we are God's people, that we're supposed to glorify him. right? And and we, we do. But that power isn't ours. It's God, and God glorifies himself through us despite our own shortcomings, despite our own iniquities. To somehow think that I can stand up here and on my own power make the name of the Lord great is just delusion. It's God at work in my life. If he is glorified through my life, it's because he has done it. God is the only one who glorifies his name. God is the only one with real power. When people tear his name down, remember it is just a matter of time until he will make himself known, until he will show himself, until he will show his glory to the world. That's why Christianity survives. 
That's why the church continues to grow and to take ground for 2,000-some years. Even though people claiming to represent God fall short, even though men and women persist in sin, even though we are imperfect vessels and creatures, even though the church in a town or a state or a country, whatever, falls short with the world watching, it cannot fail. The mission of Jesus cannot fail to build his bride, to call his people to himself because it is God who is at work to make himself glorified. We are imperfect. We fall short. God does not. God does not fall short. God is not caught off guard. God is not worried. God will defend himself. He will make his name great. He will raise his name up and be glorified. We see this at the cross. What to others looked like a moment of resounding defeat, we have shut him up finally. The Israelites are thinking, he is dead and buried and we're done with it. Better to kill him and be done with it, they think. Yet the cross was not a defeat, it was a triumph of God's glory on display. When Jesus is in the garden praying to his father, Jesus says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Jesus knows that fear, that trembling, that all those looking on would think that God had failed because Jesus was crucified. But Jesus knows this is why I came. This is the hour that I came for. Father, glorify your name, he says. And a voice came from heaven and says, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. God the Father comforts God the Son by, by repeating the promise, I will glorify my name. Reminding him of the eternal truth that God will glorify himself. Jesus was not defeated on the cross. He was displaying the glory and majesty of God to forgive our sins his blood spilt to pay the penalty was not a defeat. It was life given to us. God glorifies himself. He looks after his own name. He will be lifted up. He will be praised by all the nations. He will lift himself up like he did before with the Egyptians when they enslaved his people like he's doing with the Philistines in this story. Even directing the cows to go against their natural instinct. To not turn left or to turn right, but to make a beeline straight back to Israel. Our world will glorify God one day. When Jesus returns, they'll have no choice. When all lies pass away and the truth stands before you, there is no more choice. God will not tolerate the lies, the disrespect forever. The day will come when he will rise, when he will bring the people back from the dead, when all will stand before him and he will receive his glory. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven 
with his mighty angels in flaming fire. That's just an awesome picture. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Notice that's the punishment. That's the only punishment for sin. Distance. Eternal separation from the goodness and glory of God, from the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. God will raise Himself up and defend His own name. He will make His name great. He will glorify Himself through us. Do not be ashamed of what he teaches through his word. Do not be ashamed of what his word says. If it makes you stand out from the world, all the better. One day, when he comes and stands and judges, you will either be united with him or cast out of his presence forever. You will either share in his joy or you will reap the reward of sin, which is wrath and death. God is at work. He's at work in our world today. He's at work in Israel's disobedience. Notice, the Lord God brought about repentance to Israel so that he could rescue them with his word. In the last piece of the story, we see that God in his mercy brought Israel to repentance. He showed them what needed to happen in order to be saved by God. You must turn from your sins. You must humble yourself. You must seek God. That is what repentance is. Often when things are good, when life is going well, when all all cylinders are firing in order, when you feel like, man, I've got this thing down, it can be really, really easy to persist in sin. It can be really, really easy to go against God. And so God allows difficulties in our lives not to punish sin because there is only one punishment for sin, death and separation from him. But he allows it into our lives for us to see the reality of sin, that it separates our heart from him, that it divides us against him, that it moves us away from him. All sin ends with death. Sin for a short time can be satisfying. Sin for a short time can make us happy, can make us feel good. But all sin ends in the same place because it puts us at odds with God. We will be eternally separated from Him. And so our good Father in heaven uses difficulty to remove sin from our lives, to point us back to Himself, to call us to repent, that is to turn from our sin and turn and trust Him as God. God uses difficulty to free us from sin and to bring us closer to himself. God brought difficulty to Israel so they would seek him, so they would see the reality of their sin, so they would see that their heart was not worshiping God fully. At the end of the text, we see this in in verse 2. The ark is back. It says, From that day the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim. A long time passed, some 20 years And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. The ark has been returned, but Israel is still stinging from the loss. They're still reeling with the truth and the reality that they misused God. That they they saw their God who delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians, who brought them into the promised land, as some good luck charm to be manipulated. They lost the ark. The priest Eli died. His sons were killed. 
This is not good in their world, but God will use it for good. God was not pleased with Israel, and so God waits 20 years to change the situation. He let them feel the weight of their sorrows for 20 years. He let them lament as a nation. Why? So that they would be ready to receive him. So that they would be ready to worship him wholeheartedly. So they would be ready for salvation. So they'd be ready to get rid of sin, idolatry. Look at verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. God had his man in place. He knew what he was going to do when the people returned to him. God was ready to receive them. Israel had been reminded to shut out everything that wasn't of God, to get rid of it, to clear it out. Anything that would keep them from worshiping God with their whole heart had to go. The same is true in our lives today, people. God wants to save us. He doesn't want to condemn us. God sent his son to make it possible for us to be forgiven. He wants to save you. Look at the price he paid to do it. He works in our lives to bring about repentance. He wants us to follow him and him only, to worship him as the one true God, to worship and follow him with our whole hearts. And so the call is for us too. Are you coming to the Lord today? Do you want to follow Jesus? Do you want to know him as Lord and Savior? Do you want to give your life to him? then give him your whole heart. Hold nothing back. Get rid of anything from your life that would draw your attention, your affections away from him. Your idols can't save you. Your pride, your power, your status, your money can't save you. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll can't save you. Karma can't save you. Politics can't save you. Essential oils can't save you. Fill in whatever blank you want there that you look to for salvation that completes your life apart from God. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Any of the distractions, anything that this world constantly throws in front of us. The temples may look different. The idols may look different. But our hearts are still prone to the same wandering. The things of this world will fight to distract us from worshiping God, to turn our hearts from Him and claim our worship You may not be singing your praise in song, but are you singing it on Facebook? Are you singing it to your friends and family? Do they hear about the goodness of God in your life, or do they hear about the goodness of whatever? The temples and idols look different, but the truth remains the same. There is only one God who is worthy of praise. There is only one God who is worthy of our worship. There is only one God who has the power to save. Will you trust him? Will you turn to him? Will you cast everything else out and call upon him? Will you repent and know his goodness and mercy and grace? Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. 
For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.